Welcome to another episode of Econopolitics. Hi, I'm Joseph Marks in Los Angeles, and I'll be your co-host for today's show. Econopolitics is the official podcast of LASA's Economics and Politics section, where we engage section members, international practitioners, and new voices from the region. We're delighted to have Samantha Pearson with us today. Samantha is foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Sao Paulo. Welcome, Samantha. It's great to have you here with us at Econopolitics. Thank yes, you very much for the invitation. <laughs> welcome. We have much to discuss, so let's begin with your personal trajectory and how you became the journal's correspondent in Sao Paulo. And a second question, tell us also about the job. What's it like to be a correspondent? How do you spend your day? Some of the logistical aspects, how big is the team? how you interact with the head office, uh, number of articles per week, and um, how do you actually access everyone you wish to meet? Uh, well, thank you very much again for the, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be, uh, to be with you today. Um, so yeah, I'm the, the Brazil correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, one of the biggest newspapers in the, in the US. Um, my route to journalism was a long one, a winding, a winding route to journalism. Um, I, after I, I left school, I ended up actually studying fine art. Um, I was going in a completely different direction. Um, but I think I always, you know, I always loved writing. I always loved traveling. I had a, you know, huge curiosity to, to understand the rest of the world and to know, uh, I was nosy. <laughs> I wanted to know everything about people. And I think in some ways that kind of set me up for journalism. So after studying fine art, um, I ended up going to Cambridge University in the UK. Um, I'm from Oxford, so Cambridge, is, I don't know if you know, is the rival, is the enemy. Uh, my, my father, in fact, my father is an academic at Oxford University, um, so it was, a, it was a big leap, but um, I went to Cambridge University and I ended up studying uh, Spanish and Portuguese uh, literature. Um, it's a fantastic course. Um, I was one of two people in the whole university studying Portuguese. And I remember at that time, 2004, when I entered Cambridge University, people said to me, why are you studying Portuguese? You know, Portugal is kind of a dying country. Um, it hasn't any future. And I said, you know, well, Brazil, I mean, maybe Brazil would be, I mean, this was before the commodity boom, right? So Brazil still really wasn't on the world map um, in the way that it was and perhaps still, <laughs> still is, hopefully. Um, so, I, so I studied Spanish and Portuguese at Cambridge and then I did some journalism experience during that time. I actually even came to Brazil, Sao Paulo, uh, 2007. While I was still studying uh, at Cambridge, they have a, the third year, they encourage you to, to spend the third year outside of the UK uh, in a country that speaks your language. So I did a, I did a work experience stint in Folha, Sao Paulo. I even went to Israel, even though I had nothing to do with <laughs> Portuguese. Uh, I did an internship at the Jerusalem Post, um, which was the only newspaper that accepted me in, in the Middle East. I was fascinated by the Middle East and sent my, my CV to, to all the newspapers there and they were the only people that, that replied. Um, and it's a, I, I don't know if you know, Jerusalem Post is a very right-wing newspaper, um, not necessarily the best journalism, but it was a fascinating experience. And um, so after finishing Cambridge University, I mean, Cambridge is, is very well respected, as you know, in the UK. Um, and so it was easier then for me to get into journalism. So in the UK, they have fantastic graduate programs whereby that you kind of compete with other people uh, to, for, for a place in one of these graduate programs. So I, I uh, did this for the Financial Times back then. 
and, and was accepted, which was amazing. Um, so basically you start at the Financial Times, they guarantee you basically a job for life. Um, they pay your salary. They teach you everything you need to know about journalism because that's one of the interesting things about the UK um, and other countries, but the UK compared to Brazil, for example, is that newspapers don't want journalism graduates. They want uh, someone who knows something else about the world and then they teach you journalism afterwards. You know, they don't, they don't want to hire journalism graduates. So I joined the FT, uh, stayed there for a while. Um, I was desperate, I think, to leave London uh, and go anywhere that wasn't my own country because I think I had itchy, itchy feet. Um, and a job came up at Reuters in Sao Paulo, um, uh, the news organization. So I left the, the FT, which was a controversial move at the time, <laughs> and joined Reuters here in Sao Paulo. I was the currency correspondent, um, which is pretty, boring job most of the time but it was a time when we were seeing the currency um wars i don't know if you remember that time when we had guido montagas the, the finance yeah. minister there was a lot yeah. of talk about um about interference in the in the exchange rate so it was actually a fascinating time to do that job um and then luckily like three four months later the the financial times got in touch again and say hey you want to join the ft you want to come back to the ft but stay in sao paulo and, and be the brazil correspondent uh, it was the second, there was the two correspondents for the FT in Brazil. And so they asked, they, they offered me kind of the, the second job and I took it. I was very, very grateful. Uh, and I did that for a long time until 2016, um, at which point they were, the FT, I mean, is a fantastic newspaper. I, I love it dearly. I still feel like it's kind of my home, uh, journalistic home. Um, but they were very keen for me to move to another country. I mean, they gave me, they said, you go to any country, any country in the world, which is a fantastic, fantastic opportunity. Yeah. But, but at that point, I'd kind of put down roots in Brazil. I, I've married a Brazilian, I have, and I have two children. Um, and I like Brazil. I think Brazil is a fantastic place to live if you, you know, if you have means to basically substitute the state, as in you can pay for private healthcare, private schools right. and the rest of it um but it's also a great place to be a journalist i mean it's interesting place to be a journalist so that was the kind of the main reason that i then switched to the the financial times is kind of arch enemy which is the wall street journal <laughs> and i joined the wall street journal in 2016 and so i've been there for years when i joined the wall street journal there was seven people in in the brazil bureau and now basically i'm the only i'm the only kind of writer so everyone has been a couple of people who fired, other people left. Um, but I think it's kind of symptomatic of journalism everywhere and foreign journalism, international journalism is that the, the industry is really shrinking. Um, so now it's myself and a Brazilian woman who is a fantastic reporter, one of the best reporters I've ever met. Um, but being Brazilian, you know, she, um, I, I end up doing a lot of the writing in English. So it's kind of the two of us <laughs> against Brazil, which is, overwhelming at times Brazil is ginormous um I mean during the pandemic we've been at home so it's not as overwhelming because out of necessity you know but when when things were normal it was uh, we were traveling kind of all the time um and that it, it's a pretty I mean sure as you know but being a foreign correspondent it is an amazing job it's super interesting it's a lifestyle because it's not something you switch off you know you're you're going to an event at the weekend or you're having a chat with someone on a like Friday night or whatever and suddenly they say something there's a oh, wow that would be a great story and it ends up and there's really no separation between your life and your work which is a good thing and sometimes <laughs> sometimes a bad thing but mostly a good thing um 
so yeah I mean I can I can give you more details about what my life what my work life is like but I would say chaotic <laughs> is a good way to um sum up I mean the amount honestly the amount of stories I've written on 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 cell phones you know while I'm in a car or I've written you know huge political analysis that went on the first page of the Wall Street Journal sat on the floor of a bathroom in Rio Janeiro's airport because it was the only quiet place I could find and something had happened and so I think what, one of the things about being a phone correspondent is that you have to be adaptable especially and I think that's especially true in Brazil you know you can't plan your day um and you always have to find a way you know and sometimes, sometimes I kind of envy my colleagues back in in New York or in London I think oh they must be sitting there at their desk with a stable internet connection and they can have lunch and then they they know they're going to go home at seven o'clock and they can make plans and stuff and it's not it's just not possible here <laughs> um but that's part of the excitement I mean it's why it's why we do the job as well so I'm not I'm definitely not complaining <laughs> fantastic um let's turn now to the current political situation in Brazil and um so what are the leading political issues at the moment and which topics, what is your agenda right now? Look, what are the next five to 10 articles, so to speak? What are you going to be zeroing in on? Well, I'd love to tell you what we're going to write about, but I'm going to keep it a secret because I'm worried that one of my competitors might yeah. be listening. <laughs> but I can tell you that I can tell you the topics. Um, Bolsonaro clearly is, is our big our big concern and basically what's going on in, in that man's head, you know, I mean, we, we, he, he's a mystery um, because he, and part of the problem is that he has, um, he is, he's put, he's put the media as kind of his enemy and it's a strategy. It's a political strategy. He paints the media, the foreign media and the, the local media, especially, to be a kind of enemy of the state. Um, he doesn't give interviews, which makes it very, very hard uh, to understand exactly what is going on in his head, um, which is unfair, I think. I mean, we, the, the Wall Street Journal is one of the most conservative newspapers in the world and not necessarily that this affects our journalism, but I think we give people a fair shot at explaining themselves regardless of who they are. You know, we kind of come into interviews with a very open mind and we try to be very careful about the way we write stories without putting too much bias in there. And we would really be prepared to like sit down with Bolsonaro and understand exactly what his what his game plan is and give him a fair show. But he his his administration is extremely difficult. They're, they're very, very defensive. Um, they don't want to talk to us. And I don't think, I mean, they talk to a couple of journalists who they know are, are very loyal in the local press and that's it. Um, so it's very, it's very, very hard to cover him. Um, but what are our main issues with him? And, and, and this comes back to being a foreign correspondent. So I'm very aware of the fact that I'm a correspondent for a US newspaper, you know? So what I'm interested in um, is not necessarily what a correspondent for a French newspaper would be interested in. Um, and it's been very interesting for me because I'm British, right? And I think that since joining the Wall Street Journal, I've learned just, or not me, almost just as much about the US as I have learned about Brazil because all the time you're trying to translate what's happening here to a reader in you know Massachusetts or something that you've never met um and I have I've spent six months living in New York but I don't really before working here I hadn't had a huge amount of contact with with Americans um and they do think differently to British people they are different interested in different things so um 
how do we translate Bolsonaro for them? Well, when Bolsonaro took office, um, the US really saw him as a Brazilian Trump. Um, and I think part of the, the work back then was explaining why he wasn't um, and why he was, but why he wasn't, you know? I mean, this guy's different. Um, Brazil is not the US. Um, for example, US institutions are, are much stronger than Brazilian institutions. So this guy could pose a threat to certain, certain things, which may be Trump. <laughs> even though what, what is happening at the moment in the US is, is, is hard to believe. But I mean, US institutions, the, the courts, you know, they're still very, very um, strong. So it's a different issue. Um, and now that Biden is going to come to power in theory, um, the environment is a big issue for us because that's really what the US is interested in. Um, Brazil, sadly, I don't think is one of the US priorities for the government or even for our readers. So um, we have to kind of hone in on these issues which, which are important. And the Amazon and the environment is what interests Biden and so is what interests our readers. So what we're trying to do at the moment is find out will Bol basically will Bolsonaro change his environmental policy because of Biden? So on one hand, you think no, right? This, 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 this president is, seems to be extremely stubborn. He's kind of in his own head. Um, but other people say, no, actually, he's, he's pragmatic. And um, despite all of the crazy stuff that he says, he probably will adjust policy. Um, so that's one of the things we're looking at um, at the moment in politics. We have the local elections right this, this weekend, uh, the first round. Um, it's interesting. People ask us about that all the time. And uh, we really, <laughs> it's sad to say, we don't have that much interest in the local elections because people haven't heard of these people. I mean, even even Crivella, people in Rio, you know, like the mayors, the, even the governors, I know they're not up for election, but um, these people, Americans haven't heard of them. So if we're gonna write about the local elections, and we might, um, it needs to be because what is happening locally either says something about where Bolsonaro's support lies at the moment, or because it says something interesting about Brazil, which I think it is, we, we may do something on that. Um, for example, you have a lot of candidates who are, um, uh, who putting themselves forward as religious candidates. I find that extremely interesting because it shows, you know, that evangelical Christian uh, Christianity is very strong still in Brazil. And that's a fascinating topic. I mean, it changes a lot of things about the country. Um, so that's why we would be interested in, in the local elections. Does the editorial board ever get to uh, write about Brazil? They do. Um, uh, I have mixed feelings about it because they, uh, is good because they're completely independent. So they don't even consult us, um, which I think is great because it really proves that there is a separation between the editorial board and journalists. Um, on the other hand, it can, uh, it kind of, uh, can be quite shocking sometimes <laughs> when you wake up in the morning and suddenly you read in, in local press, the Wall Street Journal said this, oh, well, I didn't say this, like, where did this come from? And then you realize they've published an editorial about Brazil. Um, and I think the problem is that Brazilians, but also I think just normal people don't really understand or don't trust that there is a division between the editorial board and, and journalists. And sometimes there isn't in some newspapers, but I guarantee you there is in the Wall Street Journal. And um, so right. often when, I remember when, when Bolsonaro took office, um, they, they wrote a couple of articles um, really defending Bolsonaro and even minimizing some of the things that he said, which I consider and I think most people consider to be homophobic, for example. Um, and I think a lot of people here thought that that was our opinion as journalists as well, which is 
very very complicated because then it i think it also gets in the way of reporting right for example we want to go do an interview with lula it's not going to happen right because he thinks that we're totally in support of bolsonaro but on the other hand we don't even get access to bolsonaro so we're kind of in a very difficult position to the extent that the uh, car wash investigation impacted a couple of very big companies in brazil and so there's a, a business interest in uh, in that whole investigation um, is your editor still pressing you to follow the car wash investigation or for all intents and purposes, is it over with? Um, where does that stand, that issue of corruption, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very good question. Um, car wash, as you know, was uh, a long, it was, it was a long period. I mean, the investigation is kind of over now, right? But it was, it was a long investigation and it was very complicated and it basically over, you know, took over the news agenda. Uh, for a long time in Brazil. Um, and to be honest, I think it got to a point, to be very frank, that our editors said, I can't, I can't read another story about car wash. Sorry, guys. Um, they had enough. <laughs> it's, not that they, it's not that they don't care about corruption. They do. It's just that, you know, they, they, were, sick of, they were sick of corruption. And it, when it got to the point that Lula was facing his, I don't know, whatever it was, the sixth trial, you know, it was like, are we going to write a story? No. Let's not write a story. And I thought it was amazing, you know, like we've got to the point in Brazil where the ex-president is being charged with corruption and it's not even going to make news. I mean, I think that says something in itself about Brazil. Um, so in that sense, they, there was like a hangover, I think, a journalistic kind of hangover from car wash and people had enough of the story. So we stopped writing about it. Um, I mean, the news flow slowed down. There wasn't so many big things to write about anyway, but um, the news flow slowed down on that. And I think now, we're kind of coming back to not car wash exactly but the issue of corruption one thing i find fascinating and it's another thing where brazil seems to be a simple place to explain but it's actually a very complicated country to explain is that it is the corruption um the corruption investigation into bolsonaro's son um which he he says that he's he's innocent um but the the prosecutors have now filed charges against him and that's something we're very interested in, um, obviously because it's big news, because he's the president's son, but also from a kind of more analytical point of view. I mean, Bolsonaro was, as you know, he, he was elected in 2018 on the promise that he would end corruption, among other things. And I remember in 2018, when we wrote all of those stories, we always said corruption is a big issue for voters. And now you have Bolsonaro indirectly linked to a corruption scandal and Brazilians in general don't seem to care and I find that fascinating infuriating interesting and I think we're trying to explain that at the moment and my if you I mean I need to talk to people who know more than me but my gut reaction is that um corruption was a big deal under the PT party because the economy was tanking it was the worst recession in history in Brazil alongside the worst corruption scandal in Brazil so I think average Brazilians had the impression that politicians were stealing from them and that's why they were poor, which is not really the case, it's not really true if you think about it. Um, but that was the impression. I think that's probably why they thought corruption was a big deal. And now it's not like the economy is booming, but I think people don't really have the same feeling that Flavio Bolsonaro, who is, it, who is Bolsonaro's son, his corruption scandal could somehow affect the amount of money they have every week in the supermarket. And I think that the connection's not there, but it's, it's very hard to explain that to Americans, foreign readers who really genuinely believe that Brazilians care about corruption and now they don't seem to care about Bolsonaro's corruption. I, I find that I'm still at a loss to explain, to be honest. <laughs> you mentioned the municipal elections. Um, 
and the presidential elections are due in 2022, an eternity in Brazilian political uh, time. But uh, any preliminary stories there, the run up to the presidential elections in 22 in terms of possible candidates, uh, coalitions, or is it really much too soon, much too early? We, yeah, we are looking, I mean, we're always interested in that. Um, in terms of stories, it is a little bit soon, especially because if you think about the Wall Street Journal, they cover many countries, you know, and many of those countries are seeing elections before Brazil. So they necessarily wouldn't perhaps want to write something about an election that's going to happen two years from now. And, and as you said, a lot can happen in Brazil in like two weeks, let alone two years. And so it would be kind of foolish to make any predictions. But one way we've tried to kind of uh, get at that is the stories we've been doing about the vaccines as you know the vaccines for the for, COVID, uh, for, for coronavirus they um, become kind of a political battle in Brazil between João Doria the Sao Paulo governor and, and Bolsonaro the president and um, primarily I think I mean Doria's you know he, he, he wants to become president I think it's pretty clear he hasn't confirmed that the, the PSDB party probably put him forward as the candidate um, so we're looking at that and we've, we've tried to get that through in some of the stories we've been doing about the political battle over the vaccines, about how this is kind of about 2022 as well. And we're interested in model. We're interested in Sergio model. He was, he was a fantastic guy to write about. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm super interested in this idea that he would team up with Doria, um, as well as Luciana Hulcre, um, the three of them, I'm not sure how it would work. Um, and that, I mean, that's something we're, we're, we're trying to get at. But it, again, you have to kind of make it about now. You can't make it about something that might happen in two years. I mean, because journalism is not good when it's kind of hypothetical, right? It has to be something that's happening now, but we'll find a way, <laughs> I hope. You, were, you, you mentioned the difficulty in, in uh, speaking with uh, either the president or the people around him. I would think that of all the people, perhaps the uh, minister of the economy would be the person most successful susceptible to being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Um, it looks like he's under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of institutional uh, tension between his ministry and the other ministries. The story um, and the longevity of someone who initially was highly regarded by the private sector, the business sector, uh, someone who knew about economics and international markets, but right now really seems to be out of favor uh, under a lot of pressure, constantly, you know, constant rumors of his departure. Um, does that, is that all, all, is all of that enough for, for an article or interest on your part? Exactly. And in fact, we interviewed Paulo Guedes, the, the economy minister, uh, two weeks ago, and our story came out yesterday, I think, or the day before yesterday. Um, about exactly about that uh, and it's a great question because really that is our main focus um i mean that's a big a big question in brazil for everyone right now is where the economy is going and that all rests really on the relationship between two two men right between paulo gages and bolsonaro and what is going on behind closed doors um so yeah my so my colleague luciana the, the brazilian uh, she's amazing as i said as a reporter and she managed to get an interview with him um what well, a rare interview. I mean, he doesn't give interviews to the foreign press or even the local press that much. Um, and and what, did, what was interesting from that was that, as you say, there was a lot of speculation over will he basically, will he be fired or will he quit? You know, because he started this government uh, promising 
economic liberalism, basically. He said, you know, after years and years and years of overspending by, by the political left, we're gonna, we're gonna create a revolution in Brazil. We're gonna have privatizations, um, cut, we're gonna cut back, we, we're gonna um, protect the, the fiscal uh, side of things in Brazil. Um, and there was a lot of optimism. He had huge support from the private sector who really felt like he was one of them, you know, and he, they could trust him in Bolsonaro's government. And in turn, he helped get Bolsonaro elected, right? I think a lot of the support for Bolsonaro was from the center, was from the business community, people who didn't necessarily love Bolsonaro, but, you know, they thought, oh, well, Paulo Guedes is there, everything's gonna be fine. And so what happened, things were more or less on track until the pandemic occurred, <laughs> as with everyone, every country, everyone is it kind of changed everything. Um, and so, so what did that do? Basically, Bolsonaro decided um, uh, with Gedges to a certain extent that they were gonna uh, create this um, emergency support uh, for, for, for poorer Brazilians, um, 66 million Brazilians, as you know, they were gonna give monthly uh, stipends to. <clears throat> That's, uh, they reduced them recently, but they're still, they're still occurring and there's debate over when they're gonna come to an end or what's gonna happen with that. So that really changed things because there was an, a there was a calendar of reforms. They were planning to do, they were planning to reform the tax, uh, overhaul the tax system, um, do these privatizations, um, and things are more or less on track. But so what happened was that now they at some points they were spending up to ten billion dollars a month, which is a huge amount for any country, but but worrying for Brazil, right? Because Brazil, as you know, has had a kind of uh, its fiscal situation. Um, uh, has been a source of concern among investors, especially under the PT party, but even afterwards. Um, and now because of that spending, I think uh, the budget is on track to be over 12% of GDP this year. Public debt is gonna surpass 100% of GDP compared to 76% last year. It's higher than the South American average. So it is a source of concern. And so what is the big question now? The big question now is, was that spending spree just kind of like a momentary response to the pandemic and everything's going to go back to normal or is Bolsonaro kind of uh is he now addicted to spending because what happened as you know is that when they when they gave out this money to, to all the poorer Brazilians his approval ratings went up they, they were the highest uh, ever for Bolsonaro um and at the end of the day Bolsonaro is a populist leader and he himself has admitted that he doesn't know anything about economics, right? So he was never kind of really wedded, I don't think, to this idea of economic liberalism. Um, I mean, even his his past in the army as serving as an ex, you know, as an army captain. I mean, it's not it's not economic liberalism that runs through his veins, I think. So um, the question now is really, is Bolsonaro just going to ignore gauges? Because Gerges definitely wants to go back to that agenda. He wants to go back to privatizations. He wants to cut those stipends. He wants to get the fiscal situation on track again, or is Bolsonaro gonna ignore him? <laughs> right. And that's, so I think, I, I, I don't agree that, Bols, that, that Paulo Gages has lost the trust of the market. I think people are a little bit disappointed in Gages in the fact that he wasn't, he's not able to persuade Bolsonaro of this stuff. Um, I think and people said that he's not being enough, not necessarily not being enough of a politician, but he's not playing the game enough. I spoke to one, a very senior uh, banker, recently and he he made this point he said uh, he doesn't need to be a politician gages but he needs to know how to play the game he needs to know how to get uh, uh opinion columns out in the right newspapers at the right time he knows he needs to know how to speak to the right people 
the connections he needs to make and, he, and, and they're disappointed in his ability to do this, but it also kind of rests on Bolsonaro. Will Bolsonaro listen to him or, or not? Um, and just quickly, uh, in terms of will Gages uh, be fired or quit, uh, um, he, he says no, he said no to us. Um, and I, I, I mean, I may come to regret this, but I, I have a tendency to believe him because he really said that politics, he had a life plan. He said he wanted to first study, he wanted to then get rich, um, to have financial independence, and then he wanted to get politics. And this was his life plan. And the guy's not a young man, you know, and I think he kind of put all his political eggs in one basket, and this is the time. And I just don't see him, I don't see him backing out right now. I think he's gonna hang in there personally, but who knows, you know, Brazil is a hard place to predict. Um Samantha is is the business community, is the market comfortable with so many military members in the government? It's interesting. I think market people, it's tough, right? Because I mean, um, not to offend anyone, but I think investors look at numbers, right? Um, so as long as, I mean, as for example, if, if the fiscal situation is kept under control, I think they couldn't, I honestly think they couldn't care less about how many military people are in the government. Um, I mean, I think, I think the number of military figures in the government is worrying from a democratic point of view. But I don't necessarily think it's something that the market necessarily looks at. Um, I mean, as you know, there, there have been dictatorships in the, I'm not saying Brazil is a dictatorship, but there have been authoritarian regimes in the past where the economy's boomed, you know, so those, those two things are not necessarily connected. Looking, looking forward, what does the current bilateral agenda look like? And what do you think are the immediate priorities? What's on top of the list of, of the bilateral um, agenda? With the US, yeah, with Biden, yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, I think definitely the environment, and I would say uh, mainly. I mean, maybe perhaps only the environment. Um, I mean, the trade deals are important, but as I said, Brazil is not a huge priority for the US. Um, but the Amazon is the big, the big, big issue. Um, and we have we have seen some progress, if you like, uh, from the Bolsonaro administration. Um, he's put his vice model in charge of that somewhat. So Morel has been giving kind of private tours to ambassadors around the region, uh, showing them that actually it's not what you read in the press, that things are under control. Um, people say, you know, he, he's the adult in the room on, on this issue and other issues. Um, so there is, that, there is some willing there to, to improve um, Brazil's image, I think. Um, but yeah, so the question really is the bilateral agenda and it's really going to be about the Amazon. And if you think about it, their relationship so far but between Biden and Bolsonaro has, has been about the environment. I mean, in the first presidential debate, Biden said um, basically he didn't explicitly threaten Brazil with economic sanctions, but he implied there would be some economic fallout if Brazil didn't accept um, this huge fund that they're promising. If you, if you remember, Biden said that he would get other countries together and there were, I think it was $20 billion or something they were going to offer Brazil not to cut down the, the Amazon, you know, and you think if you were Bolsonaro, you'd say, thank you very much. That's a great offer. But no, he saw this as, this as an attack on Brazil's sovereignty. Um, and, and that was the first issue. And then, and then we had this, this crazy comment recently uh, from Bolsonaro threatening, I mean, in, in technically threatening to go to war with the US saying that when, when in Brazilian, in Portuguese, uh, when the saliva runs out, that the gunpowder starts, uh, as in, you know, dipl diplomacy doesn't always work. 
Um, I, at the time, I kind of just saw that as a silly comment. You know, Brazil is not going to go to war with the US, right? I mean, it was one of those things that Bolsonaro said. And uh, this, I have qualms with this because I don't actually think it was reported very well. If you see the, if you watch the clip in Portuguese, he says this, and then he even backtracks himself. He says, well, not, I mean, it's not like we would use the gunpowder, but we have the gunpowder. So, I mean, I think even Bolsonaro at the time realized kind of what a ridiculous statement it was. Um, but in diplomacy, you know, where's matter? So um, it wasn't a great, it hasn't been a great start and he hasn't acknowledged even Biden's um, victory, which is a big deal because there are very few leaders in the world, as you know, who, who haven't acknowledged uh, the victory. Uh, Mexico, I think as well. Um, but Putin, um, he's not in, Bolsonaro is not in great company really. So yeah, I think that's gonna be the big issue. We're gonna see what's gonna happen. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Samantha, I can't let you leave without asking you what is your professional assessment of the Brazilian news media in general? Um, you know, I I follow the Brazilian media. I have my my tantrums with a, a couple of practices um, that they that they use. But what do you see in terms of either new players, trends, and basically? Who would you identify uh, as overall quality? Which which channels, which um, vehicles um, are the are the best uh, in country? Yeah, good good question. Um, and firstly, I just want to say, I mean, I have huge amount of respect for Brazilian journalists. They do an incredible job, in my opinion, in very difficult circumstances. It's, it's one thing being a foreign correspondent. I mean, I've been in Brazil for 10 years, it's a bit different, but it's one thing being a foreign correspondent and you come into a country and you write this stuff and then you leave and you never go back, you know, but being in Brazil, having a Brazilian family, um, and it's not an easy time to be a journalist under Bolsonaro. And I really do admire all the work they do. And I think um, they managed to uh, get a lot of information um, that supposedly not public and they make it public. And I think this is fantastic, really for Brazilian democracy and I, and I admire them. Um, in terms of who do we look at, we, I mean, I, I personally use different organizations for different reasons. So global, I always think they're the fastest, right? So uh, often I have an alert on my, on my phone uh, with the global headlines. And that's actually most of the time, that's most, that's, that's the way that I find out about breaking stories. Um, so, I don't know if Bolsonaro declares war on the US, for example, <laughs> I'm gonna get a beep on my phone and I'll look at it and, ah, and then, you know, I'll go and confirm the story. In fact, a better example, because it actually happened this week was uh, Anvisa, when Anvisa stopped, which is the Brazilian health authority, when they stopped the, the, the suspended the trials of the Chinese vaccine in Brazil, I got a beep on my phone and, and I, that's how I found out about it. And then I went to Anvisa's website, confirmed, and we did the story pretty fast. So I appreciate Global for being very fast. Um, so we use them a lot for that. Um, who else? I mean, Valor, I think, is a fantastic newspaper, very, very reliable. Um, and there's also some great stuff for Stadil, Folha de Sao Paulo, basically the big ones. Um, I use them a lot for, for ideas, for finding out what's going on kind of sometimes issues that go under the radar of the, the foreign press as well. Um, one news organization that I'm a massive fan of uh, is the Brazilian Report, which actually is in English. Um, I don't know if you if you know it, uh, and it's not necessarily, it's not because it's in English. Like I, you know, I speak um, fluent Portuguese, read, read Portuguese, but it's just that they, they're, they're very good at finding 
these stories that aren't necessarily um, uh, that aren't necessarily being covered elsewhere, and that are fascinating stories with great data, really good journalists. Um, so yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of them. They're relatively new. Um, I really 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 like them. Okay, great. Last question. Um, I haven't been to Brazil in over two years, and I just wondered how if things have changed. What, how visible is the Chinese presence in Brazil? Do you actually get to see Brazilian banks or companies, uh, their involvement in manufacturing or um, infrastructure concessions? Um, is, it, is it very visible or is it still somewhat um, hidden? And um, um, how would you describe the Chinese presence in Brazil today? So good, yeah, very good question. Because I really, I mean, I was here for the commodity boom, and and kind of the arrival, I felt of more Chinese organisations at that time, banks and stuff, and I felt it more then than I do now. I don't really, I don't really feel that they have a heavy. I mean, this is very anecdotal, you know. It's just kind of my feeling, but I don't really feel that they have a heavy presence in Brazil. And in fact, the most I hear about China now is is Bolsonaro complaining about, about China rather than actually seeing Chinese organizations doing certain things. Um, I mean, I know they're not very, um, they don't like a lot of publicity anyway, but um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't really feel that they have a strong, um, I mean, a really visible presence, for example, here. But I think, I mean, the question about 5G, for example, is going to be the telecommunications aspect, I mean, that's kind of been an ongoing issue. So we're, that's something we're watching for sure as well. All right, great. Samantha, we have a tradition here at EconoPolitics to ask our guests to recommend a special place in the region, a bar, a cafe, a bookstore, restaurant, someplace really worthwhile visiting. This will also allow us to compile a list of recommendations for our members when they travel for research or pleasure. So Samantha Pearson, what is your special recommendation? Where and why? Well, my recommendation is that everyone who can should go to visit Iochin, which is the massive open air art museum uh, in the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil. Um, it's, I don't know if you visited, but it's a huge, a huge place. Uh, yeah, you're a fan, right? <laughs> um, it was uh, originally a private art connect collection by a, by a mining, um, a very rich mining guy. Uh, and then he opens it to the public. Um, it's a great place because it's, the, 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 the environment is absolutely beautiful there. The region is beautiful. Um, and it's got some of the best contemporary artworks from Brazil, but also from, from around the world. Um, and I would say it's not necessarily the reason to visit, but as you know, the, um, it, there was a terrible, terrible disaster there um, recently with the collapse of the, the mining dam um, nearby. And so that really affected the, the museums, uh, the people attending the museum. Um, so they, I mean, it would be a great, a great idea if someone felt like they wanted to go support them as well. I think it's, uh, I think it would be definitely, I think it's worth a trip to Brazil. My parents, when they came to Brazil, went to visit it and they were astounded. They said, we've never heard of this place. No one talks about right, this place. Right. Even the Brazilian government doesn't kind of advertise this place. But I think That's it's true. one of the gems of Latin America. I mean, it's it's one of the best kind of open art museums in the world, I think. Uh, and I'm a big fan of art, so. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you very much, Samantha. Fantastic uh, being with you. Look forward to speaking with you again in the future. I welcome you and all our listeners to join us again next week for another episode of EconoPolitics. Please spread the word to friends and colleagues. Don't forget to follow us on social media. So until next week, stay well and stay safe.